Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, economist, columnist, author, and our colleague Tim Harford on the ideas and innovations that have shaped the way the economy works today. Last summer, Tim joined former host Cardiff Garcia to discuss his book, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, which was a companion to the podcast of the same name that Tim hosts for the BBC World Service. And in this encore episode, they discuss the economic influence of everything from video games to the tally stick. Here it is. Tim, uh, my first question is this. This project strikes me as the kind of projects done by someone who reads, like you do, uh, four to five books at a time and then starts drawing connections between the themes therein. Uh, Is that sort of what triggered the idea to do this, that you just started coming across all of these different ideas and then you realize that they were all interconnected? I think if I'm honest about the moment inspiration struck, it was probably talking to Stephen Johnson, who's written some great uh, technological histories. Uh, The most recent book he wrote is uh, uh, called Wonderland, about uh, play and the modern world. But he's written a whole bunch. Um, And I was interviewing him on stage for the FT in London. Um, And I I think, I may have misremembered, but I think uh, after I left that interview, I started thinking... Oh, you know, you could do you, you could do a whole series. You could do you could do one a week, and then uh, you know the idea of doing a BBC series of doing let's do a hundred or fifty or however many, and then of course the book comes naturally after that. And then once you've had the idea, and it, obviously I'm not the first person to to come up with some extended listicle series of fifty things or whatever. Um, once you have the idea, you immediately start remembering the great technological histories that you've that you've read so the ones that immediately sprung to mind were the shipping container of course mark levinson's great history called the box all about the shipping container emek basker talking about the barcode there must be something to be done about the barcode um paul david on the uh the dynamo and the steam engine uh and claudia goldin on the contraceptive pill. So there's real classics in the field of economic history. I'm not an expert on economic and technological history. But then once you start digging, more and more and more stuff uh, comes up. And there are some really surprising choices in there. Um, But I can't wait. I could do another 50. No problem. The joy of working on this series is that it's uh, each of these stories lets you focus, focus the spotlight on a particular thing and and tell a story it's often a human story there's often a parable and it avoids a lot of the problems you often have talking about economics which is that economics is often very abstract there are all these hidden connections everything connects to everything else it's hard to really explain what's going on but when you look at something and you say look when um, the barcode was developed this is the guy who invented it this is what they had to go through to get it adopted this is how it changed the world you've actually got a lot of 
economics in there as well, but you've started with the human story. So that's why it was so much fun to work on. My experience of listening to uh, the podcast series was that it was as much about rediscovery uh, as it was discovering new things, because as you would go on to write in a recent uh, story for the FT, often the inventions that made the biggest difference sound quite humble. They appear quite humble, but they end up having massive reverberations for the way we live. So let's talk about that. Tim, you're saying in your piece that when we try to imagine the future, the past offers two lessons. Uh, What are those lessons? So the first lesson is that we tend to focus on the the incredibly sophisticated inventions. So we, we, we get caught up in the idea of the robots, artificial intelligence, and nuclear fusion. But actually, when you look back at the past, it, it, it's often not the spectacular inventions like electricity. Uh, of course, they make, it makes a huge difference. But it, it's also the really everyday stuff. I'll give you an example in a second. The second mistake that we make is that we imagine new technologies just slotting into our existing systems and changing things because they're super, super cool. So they do what we were doing anyway, but they do it better. Uh, So they solve a problem for us. And actually, it doesn't normally work like that. Normally, what happens is a new invention gives you new possibilities, new ways to do things, new opportunities. And it has an impact for, for good or bad on our economy and on our society, because we make all sorts of accommodations, we make all sorts of adjustments to fit that uh, that innovation. So uh, as an example of, of the first mistake, there's the focusing on the technological wizardry. I talk about the Gutenberg Press. And Gutenberg Press, everybody said when I started working on this book, oh, I'm looking for 50 really cool, interesting inventions. Everyone said the Gutenberg Press, the Reformation, textbooks, novels, newspapers, mass literacy, super important. Of course it's important. But then the more I looked at it, the more I found myself falling in love with something much more humble, which was paper. Because the press and paper go hand in hand. You can uh, print on parchment. Gutenberg did print some of his Bibles on parchment, which is made of animal skin. But it doesn't make any economic sense because parchment's very expensive. And the whole point of the printing press is that you save money if you have a long print run. So it it doesn't make any sense to, to mass produce writing until you can mass produce a writing surface. And that was paper, which, of course, was transformative in all kinds of other ways. So you drink orange juice out of paper cartons, you filter coffee through filter paper, you put wallpaper on your wall, paper receipts, contracts, everything. So um, focusing on the humble stuff like paper is very important. The second lesson, this of social adjustment, it is most famously made by Paul David in an essay published in 1990 called The, the Computer and the Dynamo. And Paul David looks back to the introduction of electricity in manufacturing in America in the late 19th century, which initially was a flop. You had good electric motors introduced in, say, 1890. I mean, a little bit earlier than that, but they they should have worked by 1890. Uh, And if you had interviewed somebody who was uh, uh, watching this kind of thing in 1890, they would have said, yeah, all the steam engines are going to go, they're going to be replaced by electric motors didn't happen, didn't really happen seriously until the 1920s. And that wasn't because we were waiting for a better electric motor. It was because the manufacturing firms had to figure out how to reconfigure their factories, change their HR, uh, their personnel, um, their contracts, the kind of people they hired, the 
other equipment they installed in the factories, the architecture of the factories, the flow around the production line, to take advantage of things you could do once you had electric motors. Initially, they didn't do that. They just ripped out big steam engines and replaced them with big electric motors, and nothing really changed. So the electric motor changed everything once everything changed to accommodate the electric motor. And Paul David then said, hmm, maybe the same is true of computers. Maybe the same is true of the Internet. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I found that lesson so profound is that you can apply it to the present day where there seems to be a contradiction between, on the one hand, these astonishing advances that we that we hear about or that we read about that we know are happening in things like nanotechnology, robotics, uh, and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, we know, for instance, that the productivity growth statistics uh, are very weak. They're very disappointing. And people sort of wonder what's going on. But it could just be the case that these technologies really are as astounding as we think they are. It's just that societally, we haven't reorganized ourselves well enough yet to fully embrace them in such a way that they're going to rapidly increase our living standards. But it could be coming. There really could be amazing things happening that will one day change fundamentally how we live. We just have to wait a little while. It, it could be, yeah. So so one theory is, oh, we're just mismeasuring productivity. But I, I don't, I mean, yes, a bit, maybe to some extent. But it's really hard to make the case that productivity is soaring, which is what you would expect if we have all these technological breakthroughs. So a much more plausible theory, well, one possibility is all this stuff is just not that good compared to electricity, the internal combustion engine, indoor plumbing. Robert Gordon is the guy who most famously makes this case. He makes it very well. But then the other idea is, well, maybe they're not that good yet, but they will become good. They will profoundly reshape our economy and boost productivity, but they'll only do it once we figure out uh, how to reorganize society. Uh, and you see, I mean, a really straightforward example of this, which is uppermost in people's minds at the moment, is the so-called gig economy. Um, here in the UK, uh, Matthew Taylor, uh, a prominent think tanker and former advisor to Tony Blair, just published a report on what are we going to do about the, the gig economy. I know Alan Kruger, uh, former advisor to uh, President Obama, has been thinking about this a lot. Um, and you, you realise there's this, we have these new technologies that potentially replace uh, whole corporate structures by just connecting people who want to be given a ride somewhere with people who have a car. Uh, you, you have a restaurant that's cooking pizza, you have some people who want pizza, you have some app that gets in the middle of that and just connects the pizza restaurant with the customer. And you don't need this big corporate structure. The technology allows it. This is just a straightforward everyday example. It's nothing particularly sophisticated. We're really struggling with what to do about this. Like, how do we pay these people? What benefits do they get? What pensions do they get? And you feel we're really stuck I mean, it's, it's right that we agonize about this and try and try and figure out how best to do it. But we're really stuck in a mid 20th century, you know, 1930s, 1940s mindset. And the technology is moving on. And until we figure out what to do with this, and this is just one example, we're not really going to unleash the productivity gains. Yeah, the, the example that always comes to mind, partly because it's come up on uh, this podcast a few times, is uh, driverless or autonomous uh, vehicle technology in part because it's sort of obvious that we're not yet ready to embrace it at a very large scale because we have to, for instance, figure out how to develop the kind of traffic system that would allow for, you know, 
thousands or hundreds of thousands of cars on the street at the same time, all being autonomously driven. Um, we have to figure out what to do about insurance contracts and who's liable for accidents, things of that nature. But it could also well be the case that the technology itself, yes, it will be transformative if it leads to a lot of uh, driverless vehicles, but it could also be used one day in ways that we haven't really imagined yet. It could be more transformative than we even realize simply because uh, it hasn't sort of played out yet. Like we just haven't, we haven't uh, given it time to develop further, and we haven't thought of all the different applications that it might one day have. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And of course, I haven't thought of the applications myself, so I, I, I can't, I've got no crystal ball. The, I mean, the obvious thing that strikes you me... You sure about, wouldn't be telling me on this podcast. You'd be patenting it somewhere. Cardiff, you would be the first person to know. You know <laughs> that. You know that. But I mean, what, one thing that immediately strikes me about that is um, the that we, we're still stuck in the model of driverless cars integrating with cars which have drivers. We've got our old model of, of drivers and roads and the rules of the road, and, and we're going to try and make driverless cars integrate with that. And an obvious alternative model is to say, oh, no, no, we just we we could make this so much easier, more efficient, uh, environmentally efficient, uh, efficient in terms of congestion and safer if we just banned all the humans from driving cars. We just get rid of all the humans and only robots are allowed to drive cars. And they would just you could put machine readable markings on the road and they could drive in convoys. It would just be enormously easier. And maybe you know some city somewhere. Maybe it's going to be California. Maybe it's going to be somewhere in China. Maybe it'll be Singapore. Somebody's just going to go, hang on a minute. The, we, the, we would maybe be making so much more progress with, with this if we just got rid of the human drivers who were really causing all the problems for the robots. The robots would be driving cars already if it wasn't for the humans gumming things up. So, yeah, sometimes you need to step back and rethink. Okay, so the piece in the FT is called What We Get Wrong About Technology. But let's shift now to 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, that's the title of the book in the U.S. In the U.K., I believe it is still 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. It is, yeah. One, th one technology we don't have sorted yet is a technology for making U.S. and U.K. Uh, publishers agree on book titles, but yeah. <laughs> yes, highly recommend all of it. Tim, what I thought we would do is go through one example from each of the seven categories that you give in the book. Uh, and I want to start with the chapter Reinventing How We Live and specifically with the technology of video games. This was probably, I think, my favorite entry in, uh, in the book and in the series. You met an economist named Edward Castronova, uh, I think, more than a decade ago. He made an intriguing prediction. Uh, what did he tell you? Yeah, so Castronova wrote a book, and I, I met him just before the book was published, where he said, look, people are going to check out of reality and they're going to spend their time playing video games. And Castronova had a particular kind of video game in mind. He wasn't thinking of uh, Pokemon Go and the, all these um, smartphones. He was thinking about persistent online worlds, the most famous one of which is probably World of Warcraft. So this world is always out there. It's an entirely fictional world full of orcs and dragons. Um, but you can log in and you can meet your friends uh, online and go on quests, uh, accept all kinds of challenges, participate in wars, set up your own economy, and the world will always be there. So you log out, and um, your your character is kind of is out of the picture for a while. When you log back in, the world may have changed a bit. And Castanova initially came to prominence by estimating the GDP of one of these worlds, 
um, because he said there are virtual goods traded in these worlds that have a real economic value, dollar value. People will pay other people to do the boring bits um, and then sell them the magic items or sell them the highly skilled character. So you can calculate the wage inside this virtual economy. And a lot of people were interested in this, but Castronova said, no, it's what's much more important than the idea that people will be logging in, playing games for money in uh, Nairobi or Calcutta and selling the results. There's going to be this trade in virtual sweatshops. He saw all of that coming. But he said, no, more interesting is people will just, they play games because the games are fun, the games are challenging, and they're bored of real life. Now, when he told me this, he, we were in this um, workshop in D.C., we're surrounded by policy wonks and scientists, and a lot of people were skeptical. And he said, look, you guys, you're winning the game of real life. But not everybody can win the game of real life. But you can win in World of Warcraft or any of these online games. Why would you want to work 50 hours a week as a Starbucks barista when you could spend 50 hours a week being a starship captain. And then he published his book. It was called Exodus to the Virtual World. And everyone said, well, yeah, it's kind of interesting sort of science fiction speculation. And then about 18 months ago, reports started coming out of uh, four economists, um, Marco Guiar as the lead author, who had started tracking evidence that Castronova was right, that these video games were starting to affect the labor market in the US because people were spending so much time having fun on video games. They didn't want to do boring jobs. And why would they? So, yeah, very interesting uh, interaction between the virtual world and the real world. Yeah. The other authors on that paper were Mark Bills, Kerwin, Kofi Charles, and Eric Hurst. You know, what's interesting about this, Tim, is that if someone only has the surface level knowledge of the trend you just described, it would all sound very irresponsible. You know, uh, somebody who, instead of choosing to work, to make a living for themselves, to maybe start a family and then provide for that family, is essentially checking out, as you said, uh, to play video games. But there's a sense in which we actually should be quite understanding of why young people in particular in their 20s would make that choice. Uh, you mentioned some of the reasons, which is that these games keep getting better and better. They're a lot of fun. But if you think about it, they also offer some of the things that we know make for a fulfilling job in the real physical world, such as autonomy. You get to make a lot of decisions for yourself. It gives you the potential for mastery and for making progress as you move through different levels. And now they even give you a sense of sociability because, of course, a lot of these games are uh, these online games that you can play with other people. And these are people with whom you can develop actual friendships, maybe not friendships the way we traditionally define friendships in the time before video games, but still relationships nonetheless that can matter. Uh, and I think all that actually has to be taken into account before we apply too strong a judgment against people who make that choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry about the the choice that people are making because you you spend you know, the years of your life from, say, 15 to 30 playing video games because they're such fun, then maybe you start thinking, hey, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should um, start thinking about a pension and starting a family, and, and you suddenly realize you've, you've missed all those formative years when you could have been picking up all the skills and contacts and education. So it, it could be that this is going to be behavior a bit like not saving for a pension. Completely understandable, very human, 
in the long run, very worrying. So, you know, I'm not saying we should just relax about this and it's no big deal. But as you say, it's very understandable behavior. It tells us a lot about how tedious uh, reality is for a lot of people. And even people who love their jobs, I love my job, play games. I don't play computer games as it happens because they because they, they give me motion sickness because they're so good. I get travel sick. Um, but I play role-playing games. I play board games. I play them with family. I play them with friends. I don't see anything wrong with that. And some of the, the friendships, deepest friendships in my life, I made by playing silly games about dragons and knights. Um, in the long run, the interesting question is, well, Surely more and more of this stuff is going to go virtual. More and more of the experiences that we have are not going to be you know, physically going to the theatre or, or um, going, going to the cinema. We, we, we're going to be at home playing in virtual worlds. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be plugged into the holodeck. So we need to start thinking about what that means and is that a problem and should we worry about it? Otherwise, we're just going to be Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or The Matrix is all around the corner if we don't think about what our policy sh- should be on this sort of thing. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and the authors of the paper, I believe, have also cited some circ- circumstantial but still powerfully suggestive evidence that the young people who play these games in their 20s uh, are quite happy, but that their happiness sharply declines uh, when they get into their 30s, possibly uh, again, just hypothesizing, this has to be studied quite a bit more, but possibly uh, because they haven't developed uh, the kind of labor force skills that would serve them well uh, later in life. Uh, there, there's one other element to this that's uh, interesting, which is the direction of causality, which is often debated by uh, economists and by economic observers. So uh, typically, I think the the criticism of some interpretations of this paper is that, well, yeah, of course, uh, a lot of young people are playing games the labor market has been really quite crap the last decade or so. So it makes sense that they would do that and that that's what the problem is. Make the jobs better and then people will end up stop playing games and they'll and they'll take the job because the job itself uh, pays more money uh, or offers more autonomy or it just is better. There's more competition for the workers and so they'll want to you know capitalize on that. Or they'll, or they'll play games as well as work. I mean, we have 168 hours a week. Um, you know, we, we don't have time to play games and work as well so but yeah I'm, I'm sure causation runs both ways and it must run both ways but one of the interesting things about the paper is that the the authors point out that young women don't I mean young women still play games but they don't play as many games as young men and young women are not disconnected from the labor market in the same way that young men are we should remind ourselves by the way that the actual unemployment rate in the U.S. is at a 16-year low I mean the, if you were looking for a job it does seem like you should be able to find a job Lots of people disconnected and discouraged and not not even looking for work. But if you're looking for work, it it seems at least in principle like you should be able to find it. Um, So young women not disconnected from the labor market, not playing games. Older men that they've really suffered uh, because of some of the economic trends in the U.S., but they're not disconnected from the labor market. Uh, This is men from between the ages of 30 and 55 in the same way that younger men are. It's a little speculative. It's it's. You know, it, this is not super high quality evidence, but these authors have tried to make the case. I think they make a plausible case that um, some of this is about video games pulling people, young men, out of the labour market rather than these young men being pushed away from the labour market and then taken to video games because they've got to do something. Yeah, and in in one sense also, I think uh, there's a risk of overthinking this. Uh, if these games 
keep getting better and better and better, as I don't, you know, I don't see any reason to doubt that they will, it simply raises the opportunity cost of leaving the game playing world and taking a job. It doesn't mean that those jobs can't someday exist or that they don't in some parts of the labor market. Um, it just means that, for instance, the, the labor supply curve uh, in economics terms has moved up and to the left, that for a given level of employment supply, you need to make those jobs a little bit better somehow. They need to compensate you a little better somehow, whether it's in wages or in benefits or uh, in intangible or something else. So I, I actually don't have a problem believing that these guys are right, though I, I do hope that it continues to be studied. In the meantime, it's such a fascinating trend. It, it is. And I think what, one final thought is um, I think a lot of people misinterpret the, the idea of making reality more like games. There's this, the trend of gamification. They misinterpret that as, oh, um, we should keep score. We should give people badges and buttons and, and all this nonsense. Whereas what attracts people to games well, I mean, there are all kinds of games out there, but what attracts people to the best games is not, oh, uh, that I I get a star every 30 seconds, and I love that. It's the game is challenging, um, the game is is absorbing, It um, I, I'm mastering uh, difficult skills. Uh, gradually, it's, it's, it's not too difficult, it's not too easy. I'm cooperating with people, I have a sense of autonomy, and I can make choices, and the choices make a difference. Um, that is the way in which we should say, well, reality has something to learn from games, rather than, oh, you know, reality should have more glittery scar- uh, stars and, uh, and, and more kind of bonus shields and all that nonsense. Yep. Let's go to the next uh, example. Uh, I love this one. It's from the chapter Ideas About Ideas, and it's the story of intellectual property and Charles Dickens in America. Tim, uh, Dickens did not think much of us coarse Americans, did he? Well, I, I know. He, I think he loved the Americans. He just didn't love American, American intellectual property law. So Dickens shows up uh, on a, on a, um, a campaign in America, really. He arrives in Boston, and um, he wants America to change its copyright law because America has copyright, but it doesn't respect foreign authors. So people are just ripping off Dickens' novels wholesale, often very bad copies, very bad quality, um, stick any jacket they like on them uh, and sell them for very low rates. And Dickens didn't, didn't get any royalties. And he, he thought he compared this as typical Dickens kind of metaphor to being uh, robbed in the street and then paraded in public through clothes that you didn't choose uh, with in disgraceful company because he, he couldn't control, he didn't get money, he couldn't control the appearance of his books, he couldn't control where they appeared in the, in the bookshops. So he wanted um, copyright law to be changed. He quickly ran into trouble because American newspapers at the time benefited a great deal from being able to take whatever content they wanted from uh, British uh, newspapers. So they just uh, tried to assassinate Dickens' character, and he had a pretty miserable experience. So that's that's where the, the story of intellectual property begins. And then I talk about this whole idea of intellectual property as a balancing act. You're trying to reward creators, not for moral reasons, but for purely economic reasons. You want to encourage people to create new ideas, whether it's a novel or whether it's a a better steam engine. So you need to give them some kind of intellectual monopoly for a while. But if you give them too strong an intellectual monopoly, too deep, too long-lasting, you can then strangle innovation. And I talk about the the theories of uh, Michele uh, Baldrin and uh, David Levine, who have this 
book in, against intellectual monopoly, which argues that basically this is incredibly counterproductive. And if you look at the historical record, innovation starts when the patent expires. Um, the patent doesn't really seem to encourage uh, innovation. Now, I think they've probably taken their argument a bit too far, but it, it's very interesting to reflect on all the ways in which you can make money even in the absence of intellectual property. And in the end, Charles Dickens comes back to America. He's trying to make money. His marriage is in trouble. His children are spending a lot of cash. And he realizes, hang on, I can go on a speaker tour. And he goes on this lecture tour of America, reading passages from his books, particularly Christmas Carol, very, very popular. He makes a ton of money, $25 million in today's money, not from his books, but from the lectures, because everybody's read the cheap knockoff copies of his books. He's very, very famous, and he's able to cash in in the end. So it, it tells us that the story of intellectual property is not as simple as we, we think it is. The, the ending to that story is amazing. He basically came across the first freemium model, and he hated it. He hated every step of the way until the very end when he was cashing out, and he realized that it worked in his case. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And he's not the first person to, to figure this one out. So, um, or not the last. Watt and Boulton, Matthew Boulton and James Watt. Uh, so Watt develops a better steam engine. Matthew Boulton, very politically influential partner of James Watt, lobbies in Parliament. They get the patent on Watt's steam engine extended by Act of Parliament. No one else can build uh, a similar steam engine. And they spend years and years and years just suing their rivals and suppressing innovation in the steam engine uh, industry in the UK. And finally, when the patent does expire, there's suddenly this um, almost Precambrian explosion of ideas in, in industry, lots and lots of better ways to make steam engines. Meanwhile, what happens to James Watt and Matthew Bolton? Well, they go back and go, well, I guess we're, we can't sue people anymore. I guess we better just build really good steam engines. And they do, and they make more money than ever before. So then the, you've got to start asking the question, well, who did that patent serve? It didn't even seem to serve Bolton and Watt, because once it expired, they did better than they had done beforehand. Okay, next up from the chapter Inventing the Wheel, the invention of index funds. Yeah, and, and in fact, the wheel is not in the chapter Inventing the Wheel. But the whole idea of that chapter is there are some, there are some inventions that just seem to be so simple and so basic. You, once you've invented them once, you've nailed it. And, that, and that's it. And the wheel is one of them. And yeah, index funds. Very interesting. Which um, Paul Samuelson, the Nobel Prize winning economist, towards the end of his life, he gave a speech praising the index fund. And he said it, it ranks alongside the wheel, the plough, uh, wine and cheese and the printing press as among uh, man's greatest inventions. So he, he was fond of the index fund, but then he had uh, a role in its creation. Samuelson had published this essay in around 1974, if I remember rightly, called Challenge to Judgment, where he basically said, OK, Samuelson is one of the pioneers of the efficient markets hypothesis, which is not completely true, but it's reasonably true. And the, the simplest way, Alpha Chat listeners will know about the efficient markets hypothesis, but the, the simplest way I think of uh, is to think um, when you are queuing up in the supermarket, uh, which checkout line do you choose? Uh, well, if it was obvious, everyone would already have gone in that line and it wouldn't be the shortest line anymore. So you probably don't need to worry too much. Just pick anyone. Um, and that's the efficient markets hypothesis in a nutshell. If there were obvious bargains in the stock market or any other asset markets, 
they would already have been snapped up, and so there are no obvious bargains. So Samuelson has pioneered this hypothesis and discussed it, and then he says, well, hang on. If there are no obvious bargains in the stock market, then um, professional investors might struggle to beat just the, the index, just some average of all the stocks. And he goes away and tries to figure out whether they have, and his essay, Challenge to Judgment, says, no, active managers don't beat the index which is now a very, very familiar idea. Um, but Samuelson pushed it 42 years ago. And at the end of his article, he says, you know what, someone should set up an index fund that just tracked the index. And reading this article was a gentleman called John Bogle, who founded Vanguard. And Bogle was interested in setting up a super low cost uh, you know, fund investment vehicle and he reads Samuelson's article and says, well, what could be a more natural vehicle for low-cost investments than a passive index tracker? So he sets up a pass passive index tracker. And, of course, everybody laughs at him and nobody signs up because why would you sign up for a fund that is guaranteed to be mediocre? Uh, but we now know that uh, Bogle and Samuelson had the last laugh because slowly but surely Vanguard is um, and the other passive investment funds are, are eating the active fund industry, but it took a long, long time. Yeah, something I, I learned in this chapter was the sheer resistance that John Bogle faced to his idea. Um, because yes, people laughed at him, but they didn't just laugh. I mean, they actively thought it was a terrible idea, and some people called it un-American. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize uh, the extent to which he had to overcome entrenched, I guess, um, you know, industry resistance to the introduction of this idea. Yeah, no, I, I'm not quite sure what the what exactly the un-American thing is. Maybe maybe it's the idea that um, oh, all all shares are equally good, so let's just buy a little bit of everything. Maybe that's the idea that there's something sort of vaguely communist or com communitarian about it. But yeah, I mean, it's I don't think there's anything really un-American about the idea that markets work really well, so you should just um, sit back and enjoy that uh, see, enjoy that ride. I have a suspicion, uh, and I have no evidence for this. Um, that part of the problem here was linguistic. When you hear the phrase passive, that itself has a connotation of being somewhat un-American, right? So the American idea of always choosing your own destiny, of always, you know, charging forward, being active. Passive sounds like the opposite of that. So even though in this case it was being applied to a really great idea, I think it just triggered like a very sharp association uh, in the minds of the people who criticized it. I'm just making that up. No, you, you may be right. It's like, oh, it sounds a bit Mediterranean. It's what the Italians would do or the Greeks. They would just, or the French. Oh yes, the French. I mean, they're just sitting under the shade of some apple tree somewhere, not doing anything. And, you know, American investors, you know, churn and trade and uh, pay high fees. So yeah, you, you may be right, Cardiff. Let's go to the next one. Passports from the chapter Winners and Losers. Passports, Tim, it turns out, were not invented to get you past like the border guard. In fact, originally, there were tools that were used to strike fear into those border guards, essentially. Yeah, it was a threat. Uh, don't, let this person pass or, uh, or you'll have me to deal with. Yeah, that was the original document. But what really struck me about the passport, um, apart from the fact that it was nearly abandoned just before the First World War, everyone was like, what's the point of this? And we, we, if we hadn't had that war we might have gone on a very different track to a situation where there was complete freedom of movement across the world. And your main obstacle, if you're African and you want to move to Europe, uh, the challenge is not the passport, the challenge is 
well, where are you going to live? How are you going to support yourself? Why, you know, how are you going to get a job? Rather than um, we will stop you crossing the border. Um, but the, the other thing that really struck me, which I thought was beautiful, was the original um, French passports were designed to stop people leaving. So you have skills and um, the, you're not allowed to leave town without a passport. The whole system is um, to regulate exit, not to regulate entry. And I wish we had a bit more of that view um, these days that um, people uh, who move countries, they've got skills, they've got determination, uh, they've got autonomy, they need to be respected as human beings, but they're also very valuable economically. And we should be more worried about people uh, leaving the country than worried about all the people who are, who are showing up. So uh, sadly, we seem to have lost that insight that the, the, the French understood in the 18th century. Yeah, that's right. Let's go to leaded gasoline, and that's from the chapter The Visible Hand. And to extend the phrase, I think the visible hand of government and its role in fostering new inventions. Yeah, or, or I mean, sometimes uh, the stories are about un unexpected ways in which government has helped. So the iPhone is the classic. I think people don't appreciate just, uh, obviously, Steve Jobs and Apple created the iPhone, but they were building it from building blocks that in large part had been funded by governments, usually the American government and usually the American military. Um, in other stories, I'm talking about ways in which government messed things up and delayed inventions. And in uh, leaded gasoline, leaded petrol, um, as I would uh, call it, the, the story here is about government failing to regulate what was really a dreadful toxin. And we're only still only now starting to understand quite how much damage lead in uh, petrol, um, tetraethyl lead in gasoline was doing. Um, and yet it's, I mean, it's not like, not like climate change where decarbonizing the economy is really, really, really hard. Deleadifying, this is not really a, a phrase, but getting the lead out of gasoline, not that hard, not that expensive, but there was a real corporate stranglehold over the scientific debate Companies like uh, General Motors and Exxon were funding most of the research and uh, really managed to delay uh, sensible regulation of, of uh, leaded gasoline for, for a long time. And there's a, there's a tragic story. So Thomas Midgley, who is the guy who invented uh, tetraethyl lead in gasoline, that was his first invention. He nearly killed himself washing his hands in gasoline, in tetraethyl uh, um, uh, imbued gasoline in front of Congress. So he washes his hands and he says, I'm not taking any risk whatsoever. I mean, he spent months recovering from lead poisoning. <laughs> then his, his next invention is uh, CFCs, chlor uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which later turn out to be uh, destroying the ozone layer. I mean, this is not his fault. It's just a doomed inventor. His third invention, he, he suffered from polio. And so he invented this winch for getting himself out of bed. And um, yeah, one, one morning it tangled up around his neck and hung him. He was killed by his third invention. Yeah, I, I chose uh, leaded gasoline uh, and, I, and also the next uh, entry in part to show that uh, this was 50 things that shaped the modern economy or in the UK, uh, 50 things that made the modern economy. Because uh, you don't say necessarily always for the better. And of course, the forward march of technology tends to benefit us enormously. I mean, these things bring largely wonderful things to our lives, but they can often have uh, quite brutal 
unintended effects, and sometimes they do, in fact, make our lives worse. Um, Leaded gasoline was a good example uh, of these kinds of complexities, Uh, but so is the next century, the Haber-Bosch process uh, from the chapter, Where Do Inventions Come From? So the Haber-Bosch process. I mean, this is, I think, perhaps the most important invention in in the book, Uh, certainly the most important invention since 1800. Yeah, Tim, it's interesting that you say that because that's actually the one that I knew the least about going into the book. Yeah. So the Haber-Bosch process was invented by Fritz Haber and commercialized by, uh, I think, Carl Bosch. But I focus on Fritz Haber in the chapter. And it is a process for getting nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fixing it into fertilizer, which nitrogen is a very important uh, mineral in soils. And yet, although it is the key component of the atmosphere, 80% of the atmosphere is nitrogen, plants can't get nitrogen out of the atmosphere directly. They have to get it out of the soil. And so it used to be that the way you would do that is, well, um, animal manure uh, contains nitrates, that's fine, or um, uh, guano from birds or bats, that was the next thing. So then you had guano wars, people uh, worrying about a world guano shortage because guano was such a great fertilizer and we're running out of it. And then along comes Fritz Haber and he invents this process by which if you put enough energy in, you can uh, uh, get uh, a chemical fertilizer out of the uh, atmosphere. Brot aus Luft, the Germans said, bread from the air. And the world population would probably be about 3 billion rather than 7 billion if it wasn't for the Haber-Bosch process. And Cardiff, about a pound of your body is nitrogen and it's all um, chemically synthesized, the the whole lot. So you are are, about one pound of of your flesh was was made in a laboratory somewhere. Um, So the Haber-Bosch process is very, very important. The reason I wanted to tell the story is because the story of um, Fritz Haber and his wife, Clara Imavar, is absolutely remarkable. Um, so she she got the first doctorate in chemistry in Germany awarded to a woman, a very ambitious, smart young woman, married Fritz Haber, and then her career completely trashed by his career. Every contribution she made, everyone assumed that Fritz Haber had made it. And then along comes the First World War, and Fritz Haber, great German patriot, uh, realizes, oh, hang on, not only can I synthesize chemical fertilizer, I can use the same method to, um, to synthesize uh, ammonia for bombs, and I can also develop chlorine gas. So he's the pioneer in the use of chemical weapons during the First World War. He's responsible for the release of chlorine gas in the trenches at Ypres. Uh, he is promoted, he's made, given the rank of corporal, if I remember rightly, and he goes home to, to celebrate this with some friends. And his wife, Clara, takes his service revolver, have this uh, blazing row. She takes his service revolver. She goes outside and she shoots herself. Um, and it's just an absolutely appalling uh, waste of, of this young woman's life. And she was totally marginalised and, de- and desperate to stop him doing what he did. And then in the end, Harbour himself although he saw himself as a great German patriot, he's also Jewish. And so after the First World War, he's a war hero, he's decorated, and then when the Nazis come in, he's protected for a while, and in the end he has to leave the country, and he dies alone in a hotel room in Switzerland in the 1930s, completely broken man. 
but he changed the world. He really did. Yeah, yeah. That's an unbelievable story uh, and a really great chapter in the book. Why don't we close with uh, an entry here that uh, you know ends on somewhat of a lighter note, although it does involve the burning down of British Parliament. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, not advocating the burning down of British Parliament, I should say, but yeah, so... Tradable debt, I should say, uh, otherwise known as money, uh, and from the chapter Inventing New Systems, uh, the tally stick. Yeah, I, I love the tally stick. So there are some some great books around about the history of money. Um, one of them is by Felix Martin. One of them is by William uh, Goetzman um, called Money Changes Everything. And there's uh, David Graeber's book about the, the history of debt, the first 5,000 years. And they all touch on this mysterious thing called a tally stick. So I really wanted to go and find out more. And the tally stick is this brilliant way of recording a debt. It's on a stick of willow. It's used in England in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. And you write your debt on the stick of willow with certain marks, who owns, who owes whom, how much money. And then you split the stick lengthways. And so you've got something called the foil and the stock. And of course, we st- stocks are still a term for financial instruments. And the, the original stock was made of willow wood. And the great thing is that you, when you come to repay the debt... You can redeem the debt and rejoin the two pieces of wood, which match up perfectly. So you can establish there's been no forgery of this debt because the two halves of the pieces of wood will match and the writing on them will match. Um, so they were a very good way of recording a debt. The interesting thing is you could then allow the foil, uh, actually, I think it was the stock, you then allow the stock to circulate. So you've got someone has, someone owes you money. So you've got a debt from, say, Fulk Bassett, who's a bishop in uh, High Wycombe. You've got a debt from Fulk Bassett for £5. And it's all marked on this stick. So now Fulk Bassett owes you £5. But then, Cardiff, say I want to buy something from you. I could say, well, rather than rustling around and trying to get coins, why don't I just give you this stick that says Fulk Bassett owes you £5? And you might say, yeah, well, that's pretty convenient. I mean, it's a lot more convenient than... I'm not worried about getting paid back by Fulk Bassett. He, everyone knows Fulk Bassett. He's a bishop. He's good for the money. So you, you take the debt. And then maybe you want to buy something off uh, Amy, uh, your brilliant producer. And so rather than giving her money, you give her the stick. And, then, and, and so the stick circulates. And it's bec- something magic just happened. It's become money. And you realize money is uh, debt of tradable form. So that the original debtor is entirely separate from this process by which this thing uh, circulates. And it turns out this, we see this process happening again and again across economic history with uh, the Irish banking strike in the 1970s, the Irish writing each other checks, even though there are no banks, uh, there are no bank accounts, no one can ever check whether these checks are valid. And these checks just circulate and they keep getting endorsed and endorsed and endorsed. And the checks turn into money. Months later... The banks reopen and people finally pay these checks into bank accounts and it's all settled again. So it's a a wonderful illustration of what money really is. The kicker to the story is that, well, you might think when you think about money, uh, you think about coins, right? Coins are the, when you think about money through history, you think about coins. That's because coins last. You go to any museum of monetary history, it's all coins. Because these other things like tally sticks and you know, paper IOUs, they don't last very well. And in particular, these tally sticks didn't last because some genius in uh, the British Parliament decided they were going to burn 
six centuries of monetary records because they'd switched to a paper-based system. Why do we need all these willow sticks? They decided to burn the lot. It was an absolutely irreplaceable historical resource, the monetary history of the United Kingdom. Burn the lot. Unfortunately, they decided to burn them in a stove that was designed for coal. Lots and lots of wooden, little wooden sticks, raging chimney fire. They set fire to the House of Lords. And the House of Lords set fire to the House of Commons and the entire <laughs> British Parliament burned down. And so the the building that we now think of, the Palace of Westminster, that was the replacement for the original Houses of Parliament because they were burned down by vandals uh, who thought it was a brilliant idea to destroy all the tally sticks. So it was the, like the gods of monetary history having their revenge. Yeah, you closed that chapter with that nice line about uh, the vengeance of the monetary gods. There's 43 more of these uh, in the book and in the podcast series. Uh, I happily endorse it. It's, a, it's totally delightful. But, Tim, I want to close by asking you about the drivers of technology. Uh, and there's, a, there's an interesting diversity of the incentives that end up producing uh, these 50 technologies. Uh, and I think I'm asking this question in part because we had Stephen Johnson himself uh, on the podcast earlier this year to discuss Wonderland, which you cited at the top of the show as one of the inspirations behind um, doing this series. Uh, and to remind our listeners, the theme of that book was that very often economic advances are made because people have a sense of play, because people uh, want to enjoy themselves. So it's not out of some uh, basic necessity. Uh, it's just because they want to, you know, they want to enjoy a, a new fad, a new kind of fashion. And these, again, the reverberations here can be quite astonishing. So something that begins as a simple advance ends up uh, changing the way we live for, you know, forever in some cases. But that's not the only uh, kind of demand side driver of these technologies. There's also military necessity. There is just a straightforward making money when you know you change the processes that you use in making things. Uh, I guess I want to ask, uh, what did you learn about what produces uh, new technologies and new inventions? What surprised you? I think the most surprising thing is that there, there's no simple answer that there's a, there is an amazing diversity of processes. Sometimes I didn't even, we don't even know who invented concrete. Uh, we know who invented reinforced concrete, but that some of these inventions are very, very old, or it doesn't really matter, or they've been invented many times. Paper was invented in China and then moved to the Middle East, and then the Europeans just didn't, didn't take, up, take it up for hundreds of years. They're like, why do we need this stuff? It's like having a cheap writing surface is like having a cheap material to make crowns out of you know all we want to do is make bibles so we don't need your paper so it's partly about the invention it's partly about the adoption but there are lots of different accounts in the book so there are times where there's a very clear problem uh, air conditioning was invented because they wanted to dehumidify printing and so they, they understood pretty much how to do it and it turned out once you do it oh as well as dehumidifying you make it cooler maybe we could use that elsewhere. Um, sometimes it's this flash of inspiration. So Joseph Woodland, um, the inventor of the barcode, he was just sitting on a beach and he was thinking about Morse code and he dragged his fingers lazily in a circle and then he looked down at the sand, you know, the sand running between his fingertips and he saw these ridges in a, in a target pattern and he thought to himself, well, I could make those ridges signify dots and dashes. So there's the idea of thin and thick lines representing a kind of code. And that was the uh, the origins of the barcode. Um, so lots and lots of different 
origin stories. Uh, sometimes the origin story is absolutely central. Sometimes it's it's irrelevant. Um, but the and the focus of the book is not particularly on where the where good ideas come from. Um, Stephen has another great book called Where Good Ideas Come From. It's well worth a read. But when I was talking to Stephen Johnson about Wonderland, there was an interesting parallel between um, Wonderland and my uh, previous book, Messy, which we discussed on Alpha Chat last year. Um, we we're both interested in the subject of attention. So in Messy, I talk about obstacles and problems focusing attention suddenly you, you have a stranger in the room you have a tool that's not working you have an impossible deadline and that pressure um that anxiety forces you to think really hard and produce creative responses so Stephen has a much more positive take he says well yeah sure that can work but here's another thing you're playing with ideas you're engaged you're having fun you're delighted that's another way to focus your attention. There's a much more fun way to focus your attention. And that can also be a source of creativity. Uh, not that you're a downbeat guy normally or anything, but uh, did writing this book make you more optimistic somehow? Um, I, I loved writing it. I had such fun going through the technological histories. Um, I suppose it, it did make me optimistic in the sense of when you look at all the different problems we humans have solved across the centuries. You think of all the ways in which our lives have become better. Many times they, I've looked at inventions that made life so much easier and we take them for granted now. I think you can't help but be an optimist. Uh, these inventions have often had unintended consequences. They have often created problems we now need to deal with, in particular environmental problems, but also potentially technological um, joblessness. The robots come and take our jobs. But overall... We, we need to be grateful. The final chapter in the book is about the light bulb, talking about a very famous study by the economist Bill Nordhaus. And the story of the light bulb is just one 10,000-year journey from light becoming impossibly expensive to light becoming absurdly cheap and all of the ways in which that's enriched our lives. And we just we can't get our minds around the scale of the advance, just how much better things have got on uh, that dimension. So I wanted to finish the book by talking about the light bulb because I wanted to remind people all the inventions, all the ideas of all our ancestors have gone to shaping the world we live in today and mostly they have made our lives incomparably easier compared to the lives of our parents, our grandparents and uh, previous generations. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com or record a voice memo and email it to us at the same address. Please rank and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find out about us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. The latest episode of the Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.